0: i'm dave laird i'm matt booker
1: i'm jeff walton and i'm philip friedenberg and prepare to delve into the labyrinthian word tunnels and ascend into the unified field here on the concavity show Uh-oh.
2: It. That's a stick right there. Nailed it. First, First take. First try. Way to go, guys. Well, we're very excited to have Phil and Jeff here on the show for episode 62 of Concavity Show. Uh, if you have Instagram or you've been on like booktube or any kind of like, you know, book related, inst- you know, book related technology these days, you've probably seen a very delightful looking book that's very thick and has like a, a radically psychedelic green cover and a and a cactus labyrinth on the on the edge on the on the spine. Uh yeah. this is a book that we're gonna be talking about today with the author and the illustrator, Philip and Jeff. Uh it's called America and the Cult of the Cactus Boots A Diagnostic. Um this is a book that I started seeing I think I think you guys followed our Instagram and I, it was just called Cult of the Cactus Boots was the name of the of the Instagram handle. And it was just this super cryptic like i have no idea what this account is i'm a little bit scared to be honest what is this new cult that's uh, like it's uh and then as like the posts started come rolling out over the months it started to become clear that this was in fact a novel uh that was coming out and was being published under rick harsh's uh corona samas dot press and so uh, there began, began to be a lot of buzz and interest, and people started talking about it a lot. And uh, Phil, thanks so much for sending us copies of this book. It, we were, it's my pleasure. Uh, thrilled to get them. Uh, they're full of stickers and little cardboard bits and all kinds of radical ephemera that Jeff had a hand in designing and illustrating. Um, so we're super, super psyched to have you guys on and talk about this book and the story behind it. And... Uh, all of the radical metaphysical layers and uh, quantum physics uh, overload and just all the, all, the, all the radicalness that this book has to offer. So thanks again for coming. Welcome.
1: Yeah, I appreciate uh, it. A, it's a privilege to be here. And um, I, I just want to thank both of you for your interest and support of us in the book and helping bring it to a wider readership. And uh, we thank you.
2: That is, that is our pleasure and that is why we exist.
0: And I want to uh, ask you a little bit about the the creation and the process for it mm-hmm. um, because that is sort of tied in this circular nature to the story itself. Sure. <laughs> and uh, I found my own brain doing some circles in this because Rick Harsh plays a big role. He's really the other third guy should yeah. be on this call. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah sure. Yeah. Uh, Slovenia, So that's uh, the time, you know, we'd probably have to get up in the middle of the night (laughs) to to have him on the call.
1: And it's also worth noting, too, that Rick plays a pivotal role in the multiverse complexity of the story. And for Rick uh, collapsing the wave function at the same time as Jeff and I might potentially negate the presence of all of us. So it might be a philosophically and metaphysically dangerous proposition to explore. So uh-huh. we'll, we'll stay safe.
0: And they might hear transmissions related to this in our 17 of this conversation later on, if you stick around for
2: that. Sure. Once we're in the word tunnels.
0: Right. Yeah. Um, Which comes a bit later. Yeah. For yeah. now, I would say the first time I actually heard about Rick Harsh was from our buddy jim gower okay and jim gower uh who dave and i are big fans of uh interviewed him to talk about novel explosives another big uh explosive word tunnel uh word (laughs) fever of a book itself that book we discovered from michael silverblatt okay who had interviewed jim gower who later told us that the only reason he was able to get novel explosives published is that he sent the manuscript of it to Stephen Moore. Okay. And Stephen Moore gave him a great blurb for it and that was what he was able to um I don't know, incentivize other people to read it through the Stephen Moore blurb. Sure. Now, your book boasts also this same sort of circular pattern sure. where you have now a blurb from Stephen Moore and Jim um, Gower and, sure, Jim, and Gower. Jim Gower, right. Chris Via is involved in all of this as well. <laughs> yeah. um who was a guest so this, a few episodes this, ago on this show. We've had Chris on our show before. Yeah. Um, and Chris wrote the afterward to Jim Gower's
1: sure. book. And Cr- um, and Chris uh, helped edit the second edition of America and the Cult of the Cactus Boots. So right. it, as as uh, best as I can summarize this grandiose convergence of all of these parallel synchronicities... <laughs> um, is that very early, as a reader myself, I saw Always Hungry and Hunting for the next profound piece of literature that changes one's life. I saw Chris Via's video of The Manifold Destiny of Eddie Vegas mm-hmm. by Rick Harsh, and I immediately went into a literary reader frenzy of I need this book. I don't know what it is yeah. and I'm going to find it. And then I contacted Rick to buy his book. And then we started communicating. And then in the process of Jeff and I communicating with Rick, waiting three to four months for that book to arrive, (laughs) I then very quickly thought to myself, I wanted to write my first novel at age 20, but knew that... Which is referenced in this book as well, Which is referenced in the book, but at that time I knew that I wasn't prepared yet to have lived and lost and learned enough Mm. to write a novel that I was confident of the voice of so i said i'll do that at 40. and then in february i had turned 40 and then i learned about the rick book through via and then we were talking and then all of a sudden i said to jeff jeff i'm talking to this guy in slovenia and i ordered his book and i think i'm gonna write a novel about waiting for this book to arrive in the mail and, and Jeff, I might be
2: finished it before it arrives because yeah, that's a long wait well, for, yeah. for something and the, in the mail.
1: And then, <laughs> and then Jeff, very casually, we've known each other for twenty years. He said, "Well, if you do that, I'll illustrate it." Yeah. Yep. So then, just to, to fast forward for a moment, then we are now in this circle of, "Well, I said to Rick, Rick, I've got this idea. I have not. I have nothing but an idea. Would you?" Would you bless us with the opportunity to, you know, do you mind if we use you as a character and I'm going to write about this process? He said, by all means. And then very quickly, he said, I would publish it. And I had, and I had, (laughs) I had no pages. Then fast forward to, we finish the book. Stephen Moore is aware of the book and immediately upon publication, we know we're going to send a copy to Steven. So we eventually get the copy to Steven. Steven's incredibly supportive. It gets to him. Then we get through to Jim Gower. And Jim and I start to have a correspondence. Then Chris Via takes the book. <laughs> and he goes to Michael Silverblatt. And then Silverblatt now has Cactus Boots. Back from I was Gower. I if he did, yeah. Yeah, so... It sort of grew out of just this literary desire to be a book.
2: Yeah. Well, I hope, I hope like COVID permitting and like finances finances permitting, like uh, someday it would be fun to all of us just get together and hang out somewhere.
1: Yeah. 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 Who knows? I've all, what
2: possible world could that existed?
1: It exists in the world where we're (laughs) even together now. Well, I well, want to
0: ask you, though, about the this, this sort of metafictional element, right, of bringing yourself, yeah. Jeff and, you know, Rick and other real world people. Like you said, the, the idea of the world itself is sort of in play here um, as experienced through the book, uh, which is the way we experience language, which is the way, uh, I don't know, reality is maybe rebuilt mm-hmm. so i mm-hmm. i want to ask i want to ask you there just starting with the idea of metafiction i mean clearly you're a reader you've read a bunch of these uh, similar books that we've read but like what, what sort of influence yeah. were you coming from where you wanted to start and to say it's going to be me waiting for this book you know rather than some other made up sure. character
1: Sure. well the interesting thing about that is that on uh, early in the book? There's a, a Baudrillard quote that says, The sphere of the real is no longer exchangeable for the sphere of the sign. There's no equivalent of the world. Mm-hmm. And for me, long time reader of Baudrillard, thought to myself, mm-hmm. I've struggled with this idea of the idea of a language system becoming a set of symbols that represents the world itself as objects. But then from an epistemological level, what starts to happen is that our language system and our symbols begin to obstruct our ability to truly know the world because we only know it through the impressions and cognitive impressions of what that represents. And does that trouble our ability to truly know the world. So from a language system perspective um, in a linguistic perspective, you then ask yourself, well, what happens if Jeff and I then ourselves become representations of the idea of us? Mm -hmm. Does it take away or obstruct what the real meaning of our place in the world means but then if we give up that strict adherence to the world and its object, can we replace it with something more grandiose?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was I was saying to Matt earlier that this book is like a cosmic gumbo of like semi- semiotics and critical theory and deconstructionism and simulacrum and <laughs> Lacan is in here. I'm wondering, yeah. like what is your educational background? Did you do like a critical theory master's degree or something? Because that stuff is so in interwoven into not only like the text of this book, but the ideas behind the book as well.
1: I appreciate all those references. And for me, my academic background is strictly in neuroscience and psychology. Cool. And a lot of my academic work is actually in neuroscience and human behavior. Hmm. But from the psychology standpoint of which I have a master's degree in, my okay, critical, my critical, so. yeah, my, <laughs> my yeah, my critical theory is very much um, based in Lacan, and yeah, okay. uh, that's sort of an academic background uh, that supports the work of the book.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I was a professor of psychology and neuroscience for oh, really? cool. yeah um, before uh, getting tied up into the labyrinthian and mad world of jeff walton again uh that pulled me into a new maze of exciting experiences
2: okay well let's talk about that jeff what's your what's your background here uh artistically and and what what is this world that you pulled phil into from his life as a professor
3: well uh the, the the world would be the sign shop which uh which is written about in the book and uh, sure that's, that's a real thing we do that every day and uh <laughs> it's um i don't know if it's quite like uh teaching neuroscience or, or advanced psychology but it can uh it can get there sometimes it can get as heady um yeah. but you know that's uh where i first met him was working for another sign shop uh maybe 20 years ago okay and cool. uh and that's how we we met and we just stayed in touch and yeah and he came on board but uh my background is more uh yeah i, I got a bfa and you know art <laughs> and that, that's where i'm at visual <laughs> art yeah, yeah. well, well show some, of my,
0: some of my favorite parts of the book are are where you guys are in the the shop you're in the studio your your workspace you're working together and you find this old radio you go up into this attic, or is it like a crawl space? Yeah, above the screen printing Um, department. mm -hmm, Right. mm -hmm. I absolutely love this. This might be some of my favorite parts of the book. Sure,
1: the the zenith radio. Mm -hmm. And the door. The door is one of my favorite parts. Yeah, Yeah. oh yeah. Yeah. And and, Mm -hmm. uh, this idea of this logomorphia occurring where if we argue that when we immerse ourselves in a literary experience, we become... The properties of our language system why not just take the fun of saying well what if we become language what if jeff and i theoretically become the language system within the book
3: yeah. and,
1: and 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 then there's this just really appealing notion of Now we're working with inside the labyrinth of the text itself, which has become the object which we're forced to navigate, which is working against us in this grandiose multiverse that consists of pages and symbols and text. And how do we reconnect to the uh, object oriented nature of the material world once we've, no longer allowed ourselves to anchor to what we agree upon as the strict reality that governs our actions. And
3: what and what's funny about that is the uh, the room, the office, the, the the hatch, the all those things. Those are those are very real things for me. Right. I mean, when, when, we, when I hear the when I hear the story, it's I can picture that door. I know exactly mm-hmm. what that door is before yeah. it becomes the, the <laughs> that's work amazing work. Yeah,
2: <laughs> I guess we should probably contextualize this a little bit more too for sure. audience members who maybe sure. haven't read the book yet but sure. like okay so that's some of the idea stuff and some of the plot stuff is you guys waiting for, for the Rick Harsh book that exists in reality but also there's kind of like a dystopian backdrop to this novel too where we've got a US president called Ralph in all caps who's <laughs> an obvious signifier for, for he who shall not be named uh, I ap- former president
1: I appreciate that <laughs>
2: yeah, um, and like I, and so, so Ralph is trying to eradicate the printed and written word. He's trying to eradicate reading. There's, um, there's all kinds of things. Civil
0: about, war. There's civil war. There's a civil sure. war
2: happening. There's neuroform, uh, like hel- like VR helmets that people are are being right. sent from the government that are basically they're living their entire lives with this VR plugged in. So there's a lot of like. 1984 kind of stuff going on. There's a lot of Fahrenheit 451 kind of stuff. There's a lot of infinite jest kind of stuff going on with, sure. with the Sama's dot and the sure. entertainment. Um, idiocracy comes to mind when yeah. I think about some of the stuff going on in the book, too. That <laughs> yeah. Movie, that's yeah. yeah, of course. Um, Brave New World. So like you've taken all of these kind of like really iconic dystopian worlds and just and like mashed them together in a way that is like purely your own and creatively your own. That's, sure. that's a really fun world to live in. And then meanwhile, you guys have this hero's quest.
1: Right. And, and the idea truly was to link all of these um, potentially oppressive forces from government and technology yeah. and replace them with these fictional uh, literary uh, ideologies of neuroform the Screen Sync Six, the Total mm-hmm. Information Control Initiative, and have them serve as almost satirical parallels of some of the real existential horrors that <laughs> I felt sitting at home during a pandemic and yeah. and, and during an administration that was bordering on a form of authoritarian totalitarianism that perceivably threatened the prosperity of the species. Mm-hmm. And then what emerged from that is well, what do we do about it? And the two yeah. things that emerged were well, we love creativity and we love literature, and we argue that the history of the novel is the platform by which we unify the creative consciousness of a resistant body of people that are tired of those oppressive systems.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's very much like an iconoclastic uh, vibe in this book. And in some ways it it reminded me of like, has anyone said, brought up the Pilgrim's Progress to you in relation to this book? Because it felt like the John Bunyan. No, <laughs> like, no. You, you know, it felt a lot like that in a lot of ways with like, you're on the hero's quest, you're meeting all these kind of like quirky one-off characters. Sure. Who, who, are, who are like, you know, in the, in magical realist uh, kind of terms and you're, you're like learning from them and then you're progressing on the journey based on what you've learned from them and like, there, there is this, you're ascending the peak essentially sure. throughout this Wh- book. Yeah.
1: What I tried to do was create a, an alternative parallel mythology in the book from an alternative history perspective that you see, for example, in our reference of the Pequot Massacre, which mm. just historically points out the establishment of American empire being founded upon genocide and oppression Mm -hmm. in the book. And there's just this hilarious sequence where Jeff ends up telling a story in the book by going to a casino and he's going through this elaborate card counting scenario and a card dealer starts telling the story to this sort of... uh, medley or patchwork of sort of American degenerates that are lonely and addicted and lost. And she tells this tale of an ancient time, which references the Pequot massacre, which was real. But then we put in this alternative story of this um, artist that creates a resistance that suggests that through visual art and literature And creativity, we overcome these forces that set the standard for an argument that we can do the same today. And we can use art and literature as a binding process to unite, to resist and just say the power structures that exist now are not okay. But we as a creative consciousness can unify and overcome those things if we just see them as they are.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a really strong sense in this book of sincerity and of, of the ideas of human connectivity and community and the redemptive power of, of humans coming together for, like you say, like creative purposes and literary purposes. Um it rem- like a lot of this stuff reminds me of like what Wallace would say in the Larry McCaffrey interview from 1993 sure, sure. you know like um, to what extent i'm wondering do you feel that like his ideas or other writers ideas about like the moral function of, of art or of literature influenced you what are some other writers who you kind of feel like you've really uh, been endeared to about this kind of you know idea of literature as like a humanizing redemptive force
1: my, my thought about that is truly one that the sincerity of what we're trying to do is unquestionably rooted in the idea that the book is just the mechanism to communicate a grander idea of propelling a force of creativity and change that is in all of us that we're capable of of truly connecting in a way that is grander than the proposed dominant platforms by which we're told that we can use to connect as human beings, which in of themselves are fundamentally isolating and fundamentally uh, counterproductive to our ability to push forward the species into a direction in which we evolve constructively into a world that we feel that we are truly progressing and I think Wallace had a huge influence on me at a very young age and I think Infinite Jest in particular was one of the critical moments for me where I realized that the novel is the platform by which we tell this story. And, and, and we use it almost as an unusual and abstract form of telepathy in the sense that I can sit in isolation and construct these complex ideas and then share them through this tome. And then when others interact with that book as object it becomes a consciousness itself which we then move through the text to connect to transcend into this idea of a unified field where there's an abandonment of self and there's an abandonment of our orientation to the traditional oppressive structures of the dominant civil society that we're not necessarily happy with anymore.
0: I want to ask you about that because on one side, you've got this consciousness that is in the book, and then on the other hand, the reader is melding their consciousness with what they're <laughs> getting from the book. But you know, with your background and what what you've written about in the book, I want to ask you about like artificial intelligence um, and the possibility of like neural networking. And do you think, you know, what is the future of human beings being able to actually download like consciousness and then re upload <laughs> it back without having to go through a book?
1: Well, like, can you I just put the... a
2: microchip in me?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs>
2: it would save you like 560, 78 pages of go. actual reading time, I suppose. S- yeah.
1: Sure. And, and I th- just
0: download every book ever. Just all of it. Just all books ever. Sure.
1: um, I I think there's this appealing idea that suggests that even in the romantic idea of the four of us talking now, we're sort of flirting with the idea of exploring the potential of what is the uh, net gain of the four of us potentially dissolving the materialist connection to the self and saying, what would we be capable of if we used something like a piece of literature or a piece of text to serve as a gateway, to move forth, to ascend through a book, through a series of word tunnels that represent the collective consciousness of every story ever told to achieve a sense of, um, on, uh, un, uh rulable freedom. And and that's kind of what my real thought of what the novel is capable of, because I read a book and you read a book and Jeff reads a book, and we share some collective mind space that we travel mm. to and we and and I'm arguing in America in the Cult of the Cactus Boots a diagnostic that there is a potential for us to share something that's bigger than our differences.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that subtitle, like it's, so it's, it's those words, colon, a diagnostic, which to me is like, I have, I have like a moral thing to say about the state of the world here. Sure. And I, and maybe something to offer about how we fix that or how we get out of this mess that we're in. Sure.
1: Yeah. But, but the, also the, the domino is not just that I have some didactic view Of this new pedagogy or structure of teaching, but it's more of a sort of tipping point to say, what are we willing to do together? Mm -hmm. You know, and and I've argued again and again that the book is a love letter to the novel as a point in a conversation of which. I'm only trying to contribute to this history of ideas to say what is the role of the novel today when it is under continuous distress from a, 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 an array of media that argues that we should be pushed out of reading. We should be pushed out of using the word. We should be pushed away from exploring complex ideas. Pushed into 30-second TikTok dances. Sure.
2: <laughs> totally. Sure. Or too hot to handle on Netflix. Yeah.
0: I mean, we're already at the solution stage. I want to back up and go back to the problem stage.
2: You solved it. Thank you this was the final episode of concavity there's a lot more to to
0: even the the process is the you know the journey is the the destination right sure Um, sure. um but here's here's a few avenues that i'm curious about and i will let you run with whichever one uh interests you most oh this is um one is uh about the appeal of cults and secret societies in general Mm. um I don't know if you've listened to everything I've ever recorded and published <laughs> online, but I, 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 um, I
1: haven't listened to everything okay. you've ever recorded. But the Total Information Control Initiative has provided I, me with a transcript of everything you've ever thought.
0: <laughs> thank, thank you, yeah. um, Well, from that you would know that I am—I do share this uh, interest in secret societies, and I myself am 32nd degree Scottish Rite Mason through uh, some Freemasonry references in the book. Um, but that's one of our oldest secret societies. But Hermeticism in general, I want to get your ideas on where there's this idea that, you know, only not just smart people, but people who have hidden this knowledge away. And that could be, um, you know, government secrets in general, that if there if there were such a technology that could actually solve these big problems, the government would actually own it and control it. Uh, which is also a conspiracy theory and it's like it's either one or the other Um, but but i wanted to just ask you about the appeal or the interest and the the direction of where you wanted to go with these topics
1: uh the whole theoretical thread of the cult concept is deeply rooted in a lifelong fascination with hidden knowledge, but putting it into a position where we say that the dominant power structures are not the only systems that have the authority to position themselves to uh, move and, and uh, share sacred knowledge. And the idea of the book was that the Cult of the Cactus Boots is unquestionably the unification of a group of readers of the book that use the text as a process to say, we are creating an alternative secret history by which we will use creativity and create this new meta-paradigm in the theoretical idea of the David Miller-esque notion of saying Maybe we connect to this Alfred Jarry idea of pataphysics and we begin to superimpose this new idea of what the world can be. And why don't we, for example, start with sports? It seems ironing. Yeah, there there there's this thread ironing. Yeah, there's this thread (laughs) through our culture of well, what do people bind their social contacts? Within And it seems that it's commonly this default sports idea. So in the book, there's this idea of extreme competitive ironing, where if we're going to experiment with this vision of a new America, why don't we start with sports? And why don't we look at this idea of what if we imagined a new world? What if we imagined a new society? And literature is the only thing that we can do to experiment with these ideas so i i I think a lot of the book is trying to theorize new looks at what a new utopian world would be so there's this funny element of using sports in the book to start that conversation
2: and it is very funny it's one of my favorite passages of the book (laughs) and and it like you just like, take your time giving lots of examples of hilarious forms of ex- extreme competitive ironing. That I was just like laughing my ass off the whole time. It's great,
1: and I want you guys to know too that this book had the potential to be 2,000 pages if someone didn't punch I... me and say, You need to stop writing competitive ironing sections. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I, I loved it. And I, for one, I'm really good at ironing, and I feel like I would have done well yeah. in this future. Oh, yeah. uh, I love ironing. I'm really good at it. As hornets and are like
2: stinging your eyeballs.
0: Yeah. And your yeah, feet are yeah. Plunging in lava. No problem. That, man. Yeah. I'm prepared. There was
1: also this part in the competitive ironing where I got into researching the physics of what happens when you iron clothing and from mm-hmm. a particle level up. <laughs> what, what what is happening and then all of a sudden I went through this sort of absurd <laughs> radical because no one is telling me not to uh, look at what would happen if for example there was this net Outside of the Earth, that collected incoming information that moved outward from the Big Bang to ironers all over the world today? <laughs> what would it look like if we tried to stop sort of deionizing energy in fabric? And I, at that point, I thought, boy, I think I'm on to something with this book, because if you can connect the evolution of the Big Bang throughout the history of the universe into your iron at home... There's possibly connections in the world that we don't know of yet that are frightening in many ways to suggest that from a particle physics perspective to panpsychism to irons, the world is one infinite multiverse. And the book plays with those ideas.
2: <laughs> There's an amazing illustration by you, Jeff, on page 284 Oh yeah. of a man on a train. There's a lot of fire involved all kinds of machines and smoke and uh, yeah you that's very un- that. uncomfortable yeah. so well, walk us through some of the ways you envisioned this and put it uh, visually on the page for us
3: well it's funny because once phil uh descended into this uh ironing <laughs> situation uh he was he was like i got two of the competitions down and i said hey could i uh could i request a, a setting for for the next one <laughs> Because I actually uh, grew up in New Hampshire, so I actually rode that particular train. Okay. And uh, it was kind of a nod to my, my family because we all were on the same train together. So I'm, I'm super intimate with the uh, New Hampshire-Mount Washington Cog <laughs> Railway. That is, a,
1: that is a quick note that I have to say, for the credit of who Jeff Walton is who in many cases are connection over 20 years. If we didn't share that, the book wouldn't be what it is. And, in many, and I want everyone to know that every illustration in the book, except for the one that you're asking about, mm-hmm. Jeff would illustrate simply for me coming into work the next day and giving him a completely maniacal... verbal cliff note of Jeff last night I wrote this thing and if you could just draw this and there's these bovines and they're connected to a neuroform thing and they're in an underground hut and he would go draw it perfectly this was the only illustration that that I sent Jeff like the the 10 pages and said here you can read it and illustrate it right prior
3: to uh prior to all the typesetting that we did this was that was the only section that i was allowed to physically have and read to myself
2: amazing and the rest was just all based on the the verbal descriptions right him
3: just putting me on blast in the morning before i even had my coffee you know just
2: that's like actually nuts because some of these are incredibly involved like the page 343 illustration of the like the machine that's spitting out the pages that's got a pyramid and crystals and all kinds of egyptian characters on it and stuff that's the oregon
1: Um, fiction generator
2: yeah yeah so like you just he just told you about that yeah like out loud uh, verbally and you're just like okay i can envision that (laughs) yeah as as you can tell he can get he
3: can get pretty descriptive at times sure yeah uh, you know, so he'd come in and put me on blast with all these uh, details <laughs> that I, I, I would just have the vision in my head, and I'd go da- I'd go home and I'd sketch That's it out, awesome. and then then finalize it. But yeah, it's that this this was such a fun project uh, just because of our
1: talk about Ivan. Now, the, I I just want to yeah, say, let's... for example, in this sequence, uh, for people that don't know anything about what we're talking about, there's <laughs> there, there's reference in the book about. A novel that I wanted to write when I was 20 called The Museum of General Ideas. And the theory in the book is that on September 11, 2001, when the Twin Towers were attacked, my hands disappeared and I was no longer able to write the book, so I had to stop. And then there's a portion where my missing hands become the narrator of the book Uh And then it ties into a character from my first unfinished novel called The Museum of General Ideas, which appears in The Cult of the Cactus Boots. A character from that book comes into this book and starts to argue to the narrator of the book, Philip Friedenberg, why have you abandoned us? why have you left us in this unfinished manuscript and we're just this collection of words can you please come back and let us into your book or finish us and he's an invisible character who's a hallucinating invisible ethnobotanist who is an extreme competitive ironer and from the 20 years that I stopped writing my first novel to writing America and the Cult of the Cactus Boots, he went on to occupy his time as an extreme competitive ironer. while he waited patiently for me to write this novel, but he was also invisible, so Jeff had to deal from a visual standpoint how do you have this invisible character manifest and i'll i'll let you pick up
3: yeah that's that you know you use the smoke you know just uh what was the chevy chase movie right i don't know yeah it was uh it was a it was a challenge i probably put the most effort into that particular drawing just decoding okay, yeah. decoding yeah. all the paragraphs and uh you know yeah.
0: What was someone he had all those bandages on his head? Like what was the Chevy Chase? <laughs>
3: oh yeah.
1: Do you remember that? Yeah. He had
0: like these bandages, he was invisible. Yeah, yeah. Right. And right. What was the was uh, it the invisible man?
1: Uh, yeah, that's it, the invisible man. Invisible uh, man. Uh, uh, yeah. I, I also value the idea that the four of us are probably absurd cinephiles and rather than <laughs> pay tribute to like some jean-luc redard reference where let's talk like about let's Chase. talk about fletch you know <laughs> <laughs> fletch. love
0: it i'm a big fan uh i should say for the people at home too it looks like there's like a bad thunderstorm where you are uh, in buffalo yeah you guys um, are getting um, it's a kind
3: lot of, of hearing, lightning but... behind you yeah a lot of action it's awesome
1: well I also just want to say, too, that Jeff and I are actually currently located inside the novel America and the Cult of the Cactus Boots, <laughs> a diagnostic. And I sure. appreciate a reference to some idea of Buffalo. But mm-hmm. as Manfred Freeman would say in the, book, he, there's a, in the book, there's a scholar of the book America and the Cult of the Cactus Boots that appears. And he suggests that Philip Friedenberg and Jeff Walton don't exist outside of the book. And we're still wrestling with the idea of whether or not that theoretical line of critical theory is true or not. <laughs> I certainly do. I love that. And and Matt and Dave, I want you both to know that on the record, as hard as I can publicly declare, that the one central reason that there is reference to a tesseract in the book is an unconscionable excusable nod to my fourth grade self becoming obsessed with books and reading when I read a wrinkle in time for the, for the first time and, and, and connected the Tesseract. And, and I thought I used to skip my lunches as a fourth grader with teacher Mrs. Warmus in my Catholic school St. Martin's to sit with her and say can you help me understand this book more and I remember focusing on the tesseract and it was just a this subtle nod in cactus boots to a tesseract in the vanished Wisconsin is kind of a nod to what is the most important moment in my literary awakening which Mm -hmm. oddly occurred in grade four
2: that's pretty early. I like that. My sister's a huge fan of that book. I've never read it, but now I'm like, okay, well, I got to yeah. go, I gotta go and track that down.
1: For me, it's just a point of when, as a person, do you connect with that moment where you say, books are the thing that will change my life. <laughs> mm-hmm. And for mm-hmm. me, it was that moment. So I I wanted to build something into the uh, narrative Heroes Quest plot arc of the book is about Philip and Jeff wanting to write a book and get it published. And then they move through this labyrinthian structure of a book itself around a consciousness of readers that start to influence their progress. And that was sort of the appealing idea. And for me, I had never read a novel before where I thought, what would happen if there's a moment in a novel where the reader of the novel becomes the protagonist of the novel that they're reading and they themselves will solve the hero's quest plot arc.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, choose your own adventure books do that in like a very um, less metafictional way than that, I guess. Sure. <laughs> sure. They give you some agency when you're reading is what I mean.
1: Sure. It <laughs> but
2: It's a very different thing. I think I can honestly say that this is the most metafictional book I've ever read. I... Uh, by by quite a long shot, actually. So if you're like me and you love metafiction and you love self-referential stuff and you love uh, really interesting typeface and um, and illustrations and all kinds of things that I'm sure were a nightmare to typeset, um, I'm curious about some of the more um, problematic elements of that for you guys in this process. Or was it okay? Was it fairly seamless? Or
1: there's nothing okay about it. Other, uh, no. There, okay, no, that's what I was expecting. No, and, and, and truly, I, I, I want to put it on record that if Jeff Walton didn't exist, America and the Cult of the Cactus Boots, a diagnostic, doesn't exist. And Jeff and I just have had a creative relationship for 20 years where yeah. he's so endearingly accepting... To the insanity that I push on him and just say, "Well, you need to come over and we need to typeset this novel," and and he goes, "I've never typeset a novel," and I was like, "Well, I've got this f- f- sprawling hundred eighty thousand page f- book, and and you you need to come <laughs> over and we need to do it in two weeks." and 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 really, there, there's a work ethic to this where we just there was a relentlessness to saying we're making yeah. a book and and I, I would just like Jeff to yeah. talk about that process because he totally. he had never none of us have ever done this, you know, and yeah, my you know, my wife edited the book, I wrote the book, Jeff did all of the visual design and all of the typesetting. And it it, it argues to people to say that if you have a goddamn dream, get up tomorrow and make it happen because you can.
2: Because you guys did this book in like seven months, I think I heard somewhere, right? Like from when you started writing it to when it was done. Like that is an incredibly quick turnaround time for a book that is almost 600 pages and
3: that also includes the, you know the, the cryptic videos and the uh the, all the clues and the website and all the instagram stuff yeah we were right out. totally so that was all happening at the same time and then yeah towards the end it was it, all of a sudden it was like we gotta have this thing by rick's birthday we gotta have it <laughs> and was like, oh.
2: that's your deadline yeah
3: that that's yeah. true and i had never typeset a book before let alone one that was 600 pages long and yeah. uh you know, everybody said, oh, you got to do it in uh, InDesign. InDesign, it's so easy. And I said, well, have you seen kind of what's going on in this book, though? <laughs> like, I don't know if I could just. Do
2: you see how many
1: letter Cs I have to <laughs> orient around each yeah. other in
2: kind of like a spiraling clock face?
1: The other thing that cryptogram. I I just want to share quickly is that what would happen is that I would, I would, I mean, Jeff and I worked 12-hour days every day, and then I would come home. And I would uh, take care of my kids and my family and we would have dinner and everyone would go to bed. And I would write till three and four in the morning for eight months and come in the next day and say to Jeff in a hysteria that we never missed a day. And I would describe this shit to him and he would come (laughs) up with this brilliant imagery. And then we would have to just, and, and then the next day, a day later, Jeff would send me this absolutely astonishing, brilliant visual illustration of what I explained to him in a way that no two human beings should legally be able to communicate. (laughs) And, And I would go, oh, send it to me. And then what I would do is I would write the book. And then as I was writing, I would take a vision of what he wrote and save it on my laptop. And then I would put it into the word document where it belonged and plug it in. And right. then we were just building this manuscript that was absurd. Yeah.
3: And then once we broke it all down to typeset it, I, I did all of it in uh, illustrator and, um, anybody that typesets would, would say that you're, you're insane. Why would you do that? Um, <laughs> Probably just because that was all I was familiar with. I, I right. didn't know InDesign. I didn't have time to learn it to the degree that I needed to in order to achieve what we were doing. And and I just uh, I said, let's let's I gotta do it this way. And I did it in like you know ninety to hundred page chunks. Yeah. <laughs> and probably right. our publisher, or uh, the printer, was probably you know beside herself, what are you going to do? That's how we had to do it. How many
2: um, how many unique asset images are there in the book? I didn't count them, but that would be a fun exercise. I
3: thought, I thought it was like 91, 93 or something like that.
2: Yeah, okay. Phil and I were messaging earlier today, and he was saying, like, you would not believe the file size of this book on my computer. Yeah, like, it, it's taking it, up my whole laptop. And, with and all...
1: <laughs> I, I want you guys to know for anyone that's writing a book or thinking of writing a book, there, there's even a point in the novel itself where we break from the traditional evolution of the narrative and I write a section where I say something about, okay, we're at 300 pages and I was constantly anxious about the document failing in some way and at page 300, my wife and I went to FedEx whatever to try to print it and we crashed the printer and and i and i had like the novel on a thumb drive and it was 300 pages and i was like if i don't print this this novel's going to vanish and the total information control initiative is going to is going to win and, and and i remember like looking at a kid that worked at FedEx that came up to me was like what are you guys trying to do and i was like i'm i'm trying to print a novel i got 300 pages of a novel and i gotta print it and it didn't work and i came home and i was like jeff the file like won't print at kinko's and he's like yeah he's like because you've got you know 15 huge illustrations in a word file oh yeah you know and uh i guess you can't do that it was definitely that's a a great story i love that but I, how many
2: backups do you have? Like how many like oh how my, external oh hard my, drives I, do you have? All this stuff I, on like I, I'd be so paranoid. I,
1: I want you to know that what started to happen quickly was that on the laptop that we're talking on now, I wrote the whole novel and then Jeff would make illustrations and then I would save it and I would drag and drop it into the manuscript. And there I I have in this house four working printed documents of what the novel was from page 300 to 500 to 600 to 760 Um, and i was constantly under this excessive anxiety of what happens if this thing disappears
2: did you have like a, a USB stick or like external hard drive in like a bank vault, like locked up <laughs> fireproof? Like
1: well, we had, we had two and it was, we would like, and truly I want to express my technological, my technological ignorance of, I would save it on the computer and then save it on a thumb drive and then save it on a hard drive And it would be like four in the morning and I would wake my wife up and be like, Heather, I'm done for the night. Can you save it? (laughs) And, and, and and I would need another human being to come in and sort of say, okay, this is really happening and, and we've got it and I saved it and you're okay. Go to bed.
2: It's like having a newborn infant where, you know, my wife's like okay i need you to like get up and change the baby and then give it to me at four in the morning and then i'll feed it and it's like it's like you're you're helping this living organism uh like exist and flourish together kind of sounds like a very collaborative project not only the two of you guys but with heather and with rick it was it
1: was it was it was I was writing Jeff was illustrating Heather was editing and saving and we were working and parenting and, and, and and truly um, it, it wouldn't be possible without this loving network of people that believed in an idea. And unquestionably I have a truly, far from pretentious romantic idea that someone reads this book and they come out the other side and say, if these people were able to make this, I am going to set this book down and I'm going to make my dangerous creative idea become a reality tomorrow because I'm not okay with the shape of the world today.
2: That's beautiful. I love that. Uh, I think you've you've accomplished that all you and your whole team um, we're we're thrilled to be able to have you on as guests and to talk about this book and and get it out to more and more folks Um, at this point Matt do you want to talk about any of your favorite parts of the book or what were some what were some of your favorite highlights comedic philosophical sure no I have a few
0: questions actually related to some details of some stuff For people who haven't read the book, uh, can you just start out by telling us what is a cactus boot and talk about (laughs) cactuses for a minute? Maybe about the desert symbolism, um, the appeal of the cactus in general. um, Just for someone who doesn't know, you know,
1: it's a wonderful question, and the whole idea of a cactus boot is that there was this idea early on that the, 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 the cactus boot concept was that it meant nothing. Existentially (laughs) the cactus boot concept was absurdism manifest as comedy and, uh, exploration of this hope that if we use words to represent the world, why don't we start taking new combinations of words in this einstein concept of combinatory play new combinatory play which he argued that if you took concepts and combined them in a way that have never been combined before you could output new arrangements of possible worlds so a cactus boot in the beginning, was nothing more than a statement of these are things that we don't know that have been combined before, but why don't we start to play as a civilization and a species of investing in our language systems to come up with new combination of words, to, to come up with expressions of new possible worlds. And the whole entire book, from an artistic, creative, literary standpoint, is an argument to say let's begin with using words to come up with ways to newly represent an idea of the world that is possible yet alternative but then there's a point in the book where one of the most emotional emotionally challenging points and i told jeff i was writing the book and i was like jeff and i don't want to spoil anything but i said Last night, something happened in the book where the cactus boot concept became literal and it's the emotional turning point of the book where I need readers to know that we are not safe and that we are all always under a certain amount of risk. And I, I wanted people... And there's even a point in the book where we say we want the reader to be, believe That we're in jeopardy and that Jeff and I are willing in the book to die for what we believe in and that comes through
0: I think that part about combining words uh, really appeals to anyone who writes or has created anything Um, George Carlin had a bit about that of uh, like saying a sentence that had never been said before Um, and carlin starting with a c cult the cactus boots there's a lot of alliteration the power of the letter c here
1: right um, and right. That,
0: that that comes across uh visually as well as um you know in the written form was there anything in particular that drew you to that
1: those ideas of exploring representation of a a language system where we are constantly overwhelmed with information that if we're not active participants in the process of deconstructing what it means we use this idea in the book of word fever where we use Mm -hmm. the the narrator uses an orgone fiction generator to produce the the text of the book we say that what happens if our language system deconstructs to the point that we no longer have anchor to material representation? Are we then in a sense as creative agents exercising free will able to use those same systems to imagine a new possible world? And that's what the book uses on a level of linguistics and semiotics is saying, if we just use the same construct, but apply it to a new creative meta paradigm, can we possibly argue that there's new types of worlds imaginable? And What happens is that awakening occurs in the book where we suggest that it evolves and then the participation of the readers observing the text structure itself sort of on a quantum mechanical level collapses the wave function of the book you're holding itself to say that once we observe it, it becomes alive.
0: Now, see, to me, a lot of that information Um, We see controlled, we've mentioned 1984, Infinite Jest, some other uh, books that actually have futuristic uh, or near futuristic systems of government. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the total information control initiative in the book um, sort of weaponizes this in a way, but also there's a misinformation aspect to it as well that we see in our current world where the, the weaponization of information is, is to control people through propaganda. Uh, you know, what do you see as the future of government and the role not only in this uh, America, but that other America?
1: Well, my, my thought was that there's a dangerous convergent of the most powerful technology companies becoming integrated with the systems of government to uh, oppress what we're talking about, which is this idea that we're saying if we have something like a book that unifies people, we can use the book and we can use literature and art and creativity as an outlet by which to say, we won't be victims of this oppression that puts the species into this sort of inoperable position of evolution. And, and why not say that we use books as a way out of a system to which that we don't necessarily agree with the dominant construct of anymore. And um, that's the ultimate hope, is that the book is a process of enlightenment to say that readers... When reading a text, allow the thinking mind to possibly flirt with this idea of a unified field where we dissolve the self through the work of art to become something bigger and more unified that is the catalyst to move beyond the system that we're no longer complacent in accepting its irregularities with.
2: It's like a like literature as a way to make us more fully human.
1: Sure. Or make us almost potentially able to transcend the things that make us too human, be- too human. <laughs> be- because <laughs> our binding to our humanity is one yeah. that constantly seeks for an appetite of control and direction.
2: Right. Okay. Right.
1: Yeah, I got you.
2: So is that like kind of a post-human element to, sure. to what this book is doing? Maybe, sure. Okay. Sure. Yeah.
1: And, and the book itself becomes the transhumanist movement beyond the paradigm and then I sort of tried to use David Miller's idea of a creative meta-paradigm in his book, The Philosophy of Creativity, to say, well, isn't the movement into a new ascension of the conscious experience human creativity? Hmm. And, and readers themselves, by using books to learn, discover, and grow, have that as an access point to new levels of heightened consciousness in which we radically catapult ourselves beyond the material uh, confines of our limitation, I guess. Hmm. Uh,
0: I want to go back to and ask you a, a bit about what we referred to at the beginning of this conversation was you waiting for Rick Harsh's book to arrive from Slovenia in the mail and i've ordered books from rick it's very exciting to get package from slovenia in the u.s postal service um and in that book you mentioned the story about jeff and the casino Um, in the book manifold destiny of eddie vegas by rick harsh which plays a role in this book there's plenty of of gambling vegas poker um do you want to explain one how what it was like to get *Manifold Destiny* of Eddie Vegas when you did get it and read it, and what parts of it uh, resonated most with you, and then how did those, you know, translate into this book?
1: Well, I I think in some regard, what Rick Harsh's book *The Manifold Destiny* of Eddie Vegas served as is this uh, keystone criterion moment in any reader's desire to say I'm looking for insight into what the human experience is and I use literature as a process by which I get closer to that uh, understanding and for me that book was symbolic of that process of I'm looking for a connection to know what other human beings, readers and writers are using uh, literature for as a way to say, how do we express ourselves as a species uh, using books as a way to communicate this idea of how do we find meaning and how do we find our connection to one another through those meanings and then saying okay well now let's pivot to say that we agree that books are the mechanism by which we get access to those ideas and then all of a sudden well what would happen if I can then link to an entire grand cosmological network of this conscious epistemology of readers and thinkers and artists that say, let's all connect through books. I'm on the other side of the page that you're on the other side of the page of and he or she or they are on the other side of the page of and we tear that down and say what if we're all in the same book looking for the same thing and we start to use that as the unifying principle that which we say we're bigger than the systems that control us
2: That's an amazing uh, manifesto for liberation and uh, it's one of the things that, that I love so much about having done this show with Matt for the last six years is the, the human connection and community that has come around, just people who love books and talk about them. That's right. <laughs> yeah. and, um, and it's been amazing. As
1: much as we can philosophize about the mechanics of what the book is trying to do, the very process of Dave and Matt and Philip and Jeff binding around this idea that's what's dangerous and the book is the access point which we enter into an a a position in history where we say we're going to dare to talk about big ideas and the very process of us talking about big ideas and using literature as that mechanism or that springboard is which is most threatening to the power systems
0: well, and for us, you know, the literature as a sort of overarching theme or even as a genre or as a term, you know, is, is tough because I, I feel like I'm way more interested in books by Philip Friedenberg, Rick Harsh, Jim Gower than like, You know, there's a new Franzen book out or Murakami. You know, like you don't need me to go tell you to read Ulysses and Moby Dick. Like those are great works of art. But like if I meet someone who's like, oh, I love literature, you know, I've read um, Moby Dick. I say, well, I love Moby Dick. We can sit and talk about it. But if you tell me you've read America and the Cold of the Cactus Boots, well, that's not just literature to me. That's like you are in a cold. Like we are. Yeah. Right. We are in a small cold.
1: And, and 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 Dave and Matt, I truly value the two of you even connecting with that because, I, I as genuinely as I can mean it is I, Jeff and I have packed every page in this book with an energy that is about saying we're just using a book as a platform to say that you and I have the same intrinsic desires to feel at home in ourselves and in the world and we all agree that in some regard it's perpetually terrifying to be floating through the universe on a big dark black rock in nothingness and if we don't find a way to say that we mean the same thing in love and compassion and community we're not doing it for the right reason and and, and there's some 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 of romance of saying we're, we're 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 profoundly troubled by the fact that we're some sentient conscious cognitively processing information organism that is not uh, willing to just accept the fact that we're on a rock in the universe moving towards some nothingness. So why don't we combine to say, let's make the best of our time.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah. Well, that's, that's beautifully put. And that comes through the novel so well. And not only does it have all these, you know, beautiful redemptive things to say, it's just a great, great deal of fun to read as well.
0: I, and, and we could tell one thing, you know, I, I felt like this from the very beginning, too, is, or maybe halfway through the book of like how much um, fun, like, you know, we, we've talked a little bit about the, the ironing stuff, which to me, I, I mean, this is a total compliment, reminded me of what some of my favorite parts of John Hodgman's book, yeah. um, where he has this great part about competitive, like, beard trimming and all the different types of shears required for trimming certain hairstyles of beards. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Same here. And he has, you know, 700 different hobo names. And there's some of his that kind of, like, humor also in this book, but also just you know, that kind of buzz that you're on right now, where I feel like we could sit and talk about this sure. till 4am right. and you could sit and write about it. Like that does come through in the book. Whereas often books that are labored over and, and edited to death often just feel, you know, that they've got the life cut out of it. Right. Whereas the, 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 life is in here. Clearly no ideas were off the table. If you're like, yeah. <laughs> we're going to do this on the page, you know, as a piece of art, or, as you know, to communicate in whatever wild ways, did you have any ideas that didn't you weren't able to translate into the book? Um,
1: I, I really have to say that there weren't, there, there were no ideas that were ever off the table. The, the only real thing that I, I kept saying to a few people that loved and supported us through the whole thing was like, I kind of was saying, at some point I kept referring to it as a flight and I I would say, okay, I feel like I'm in the descent and I need to land this thing back on the ground. And, and to be quite, <laughs> to be quite honest, I, I, I never thought the book would end. And yeah, there, there, there was no point where, I wanted to stop other than the reason then I thought well I guess every book that I've ever read ends so I guess I'm writing a book (laughs) and I guess it has to end but right that's the paradigm yeah yeah but to me the book is the book is still going but what's most beautiful and inspiring is that Matt and Dave I I truly feel like the success of the book is that The book didn't end because now the book lives in you and it lives in you and then the next reader and the next reader. And the book truly starts to begin when someone sets the big green monster down and they say, I'm going to go do the thing that I've always wanted to do. And if this Mm -hmm. book ever works, it works because someone says, I too can live the thing that I've dreamed. And that's what good art should do: is makes. So, if, yeah, if you're
2: a good, galvanized If
1: you're a good plumber, or you're a good hockey player, or you're a good painter, or a graphic designer, or a novelist, or you're a train engineer. If you go into it inspired and you feel alive, then your art has succeeded.
0: I have one um, kind of final request for you. On that note, um, of the I. The, infinite right the book is infinite in a way because it can live on right it's still living on in your consciousness we're in this word tunnel with you right here what I would like you to do is to take the book open it to a random page and just read from just flip the book open and read random sample yeah Yeah, just pick a just wherever you flip it open to, to read us for about five minutes
1: page 218 I call out to the reader, Are you there? Are you still listening? Are you still reading inquisitively along? Do you still hear the sound of my voice in your mind? I hope that I have not caught you voyeuristically off guard by breaking through the text into your mind to speak for a moment directly to you as you dare to dive deeper into me as you dare to dive deeper into the book, curiously navigating the precariousness and newness of it all, as the turbulence and beauty of your own daily life sits on hold in the background, peeking in at you just outside of the small four walls of this book that you currently are holding begging you no longer to put on hold, your ride on the subway, your lunch break, your feet up on the couch, your electric bill due in two days, your sick grandmother, your next day off, your grocery list, your worries about work, your love for your family, your month late rent, your weight, your diet, your style, your exercise strategy, your credit debt. Your fleeting levels of happiness, your dreams, your hopes, your growing older, your noisy neighbor, your president, your politics, your sense of missing out, your regrets, your past, your future, your own death. Your anxieties and fears, your outfit choice, your Freudian slips, your bad haircut, your rejection, your boss, and all of the infinitely crippling worries that you carry with you every day. Please know that these will all be overcome. As you continue to read the book, I, the author, ancient as a singular new member of the Cult of the Cactus Boots, and by the end of this book... You, along with yourself, Jeff, and Rick, will ascend into the unified field. Thank you for coming along on the ride. Free yourself from the burden of yesterday. Free yourself from the burden of tomorrow. And come alive in the one and only infinite here and now. Join the cult of the cactus boots, and all of those things shall be washed away
2: forever and That's ever it. amen amen i remember reading that section specifically and feeling really overwhelmed emotionally like that whole litany of lists about the, the things that you love and hope and family and and your own death and and failures and sadness and all that stuff i was just like i think i remember almost tearing up at that part just being like Man, that articulates the human consciousness and experience in a really profound and poignant way.
1: And and Dave, the thing is, is that there is this unescapable unity that you and me and every Mm -hmm. other reader feel when we know that we're all sharing the same existential responsibility to say we can be crippled by these things or we can be united and we can together come to a new realization that we are all readers in the cult of the cactus booths.
0: (laughs) And, and that ascent to the unified field is actually illustrated on page 535. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's right. This is one of my favorite pages. And I want to ask how this was done. Uh, Jeff, how the hell did you do this? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah.
3: that.
2: Uh, I just took a screenshot of that for future reference <laughs> yeah. for our yeah. listeners.
3: <laughs> yeah, f- uh, what was it, 583 you said? So, 535. 535. 535, there it is. Yeah, that was, um, you know, uh, Phil and I were talking about the book and, you know, he's just doing all these outlandish things, breaking rules and, you know, I said, "Well, in my illustration, i I kind of wanna, I kind of wanna break a rule. I, you know, let's do something that hasn't been done. Let's 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 do that." So he gave me that chunk of text at the top. Some I added, and then uh, and then it just goes in. And, and, and we,
2: the, the text letters like melt into the image.
3: Right. So, um, I guess for people that can't see what we're doing here, it's <laughs> it, the text actually turns into the uh, into the artwork. And then there's a series of uh, illustrations by uh, Gunther Albatross Plato, and his descent into, um, you know, into madness. I guess you could call it. And um, and that was a lot of fun doing that particular first uh, slide of that.
1: Jeff and I always Mm -hmm. talked about that as being the centerfold of the book, like like it's some literary Playboy. (laughs) Yeah, totally. It's tough. It's tough to say.
3: It's tough to say who, what the actual centerfold is, because you also have those uh, glorious renderings of irons in there too. uh, There, there, and the stickers of irons. (laughs) too.
1: there's also a section in the book that Jeff very brilliantly uh, illustrated a genetic uh, expression of what barley would look like and there's a beer recipe in the book that Jeff is a brewer and and has uh, brewed beers, and we said, well, what if we make a a brew in the book, but it has human chromosomes in it, and there's this section where we're inside the Rick Harsh cortex, and we meet this character (laughs) that to get us out of a word fever, he has to dump all of these antiques on us, And uh, there's a section where Jeff brilliantly illustrates barley turning into human DNA.
2: (laughs) That reminds me of a beer that I think Rogue Brewery in Portland made. That it had the the brewer's um, beard, yeah, um, like cultures the, in it. Yeast
3: they harvested from his, uh, yeah, beard. his beard. I used. actually <laughs> had that beer when I was in Portland. Yeah, did you? Did I you was like, not brave Ooh. enough to have that. I don't. Think. I went for it. I said, "Up, oh, I got a beard. Let's nice. do this." The
1: funny thing yeah. too is, to Jeff's credit, at one point in Buffalo he reached out to like a local brewery and was like, Hey, I'm this guy and we're illustrating this book and we've got this beer. Do you want to make it? And, uh, you know, can we call it lust? Suds, yeah. Ultra? Yeah. As yeah well? It's lust, Suds, lust, Suds, Ultra. Yeah,
3: I might try again in a little bit once, uh, once we see where this thing goes. But I also Amazing. reached out to, a. Uh, pickle company to see if they would pickle <laughs> cactuses for us but uh, oh, they denied that me would be an ag- that would be
2: an amazing piece of merchandise right? that you could sell Jeff and I, at, the, at the book Jeff tour Jeff
1: and I straddle a fine line that delineates the observation of us as either in crazy people or, or creative people and we're sort of unforgiving in where that line is yeah
3: sure
0: Probably the, the most thing. disturbing um, image in the book to me has got to be this one: <laughs> the, the Rick, Rick Harsh homunculus, yeah, yeah, the yeah. homunculus to Rick Harsh <laughs> yeah. being worn in the baby carrier, the baby <laughs> yes, Bjorn carrier. Nuts.
2: There's also the one of the of on page three eighteen of the cowboy man with his eyes being completely like melted
0: uh,
3: out of yeah, his eye yeah.
1: sockets th- th- with th- the cattle. That pod. was also just a sort of thing of Jeff. Sort of uh, t- like the idea was always, okay, we're, we're, we're going to be untethered to our, our basis in reality if we don't have some look at what this world looks like. All in right. Jeff's illustrations, we're always this real practical, pragmatic argument of, well, sh- if I can see this world and what it looks like, this, this must be possible. And and there's this idea of this Tlingit ancient tribal uh, Alaskan glacial ice being melted by this archaeologist that brings it down to this slaughterhouse um, where these bovine are given this sort of divine spiritual water that they drink. And it gives them sentience and consciousness and the bovine get into this really hilarious discussion of like, okay, well, what happens as soon as you're a sentient, cognitive processing, conscious uh, organism? Well, we're going to have a conversation of this dialectic of... Kantian materialism <laughs> argued against well what's the other pop cultural narrative of materialism well it's madonna's material girl in a material world so we have these conscious bovine that are like okay well shit we're conscious now what do we talk about as people like you, what does what a conscious bovine discuss? Well, obviously it's Kantian ethics with pop sure. cultural Madonna lyrics that you discuss yeah. before moving into the sort of, um, you know, the the bovine slaughterhouse before becoming liberated and then you have characters in the book that go into the bovine bellies and then from the bovine bellies they go through these ward portals where they end up in this eleanor roosevelt moon base where you had these characters that were building a replica panama canal in the cortex of rick harsh and then you have a character that's making a replica and then he goes through these logistical challenges of putting his construction equipment through the portals in the Panama Canal to get to the moon base where Eleanor Roosevelt wants to build this superstructure cosmological portal a la 2001 A Space Odyssey <laughs> where we can catapult from the book to the moon into the grandeur cosmology of the universe. And it all comes together.
2: It sure does. There's other great parts of the book. Like um, there's a part about selling Dick Cheney's soul fragments to purchase the video game Call of Duty Cold War, which is a game that I was actively enjoying at the time of this reading. And I think it's the first thing I reached out to you, Phil. And it's like, oh, my gosh, this made me laugh so hard. I just played this game last night. And,
1: and, and, And there's this idea in the book. That there's a character that's a kid that goes to the Bohemian Grove ritual where, you know, the secret societies or creation of care. So So there's a kid that's selling milkshakes in the George Bush cabins at the creation (laughs) of care ceremony at the Bohemian Grove. And then and in that moment, Dick Cheney, is uh, his soul is blasted into fragments. That Then the kid catches some in his pocket. And then there's these Dick Cheney soul fragments. And then as, as writing the book, it was this problem-solving exercise of like, well, what would we, we do if we had Dick Cheney soul fragments? And then it would be like, well, Jeff – Is sitting like scouring eBay for these rare artifacts, and he finds this kid that is selling uh, these Dick Cheney soul fragments because he doesn't have enough loot to buy the new Call of Duty. <laughs> so Jeff, yeah. of course, Jeff says, shit, I want to buy Dick Cheney soul fragments. Those will come in handy. Yeah, those will come in handy. Yeah. So then we get these Dick Cheney particle accelerators where Jeff buys them. And when Jeff and I end up in the word tunnels, which is the history of every story ever written, it's this problem-solving exercise of, well, if we've turned into words and then we become binary information of ones and zeros i think the only practical way out of that would be well hey i have these dick cheney soul fragments why don't i put them through the particle accelerator and put them over our eyes and we could turn binary information back into a language system and then we'll just be able to work our way back through the world of the book yeah, and the uh, suitcase. It's that easy. Right, right? right. The suitcase right. to store yeah. those fragments cost way more than fragments. Uh, right. right. <laughs> and, and then there's this sort of funny thing of, like, Jeff and I are, like, just real, normal people in the world. But then we had this idea of, like, books can be used – To create new propositions about like, well, what would we do if we were really in this scenario and we had to get from, hey, we want to write a book to we met this author and this author is going to publish our book. And then the whole genesis of the idea was I said to Jeff, like. What if I wrote this book about like me and you try to publish a book, and then we meet this Rick Harsh guy, and he sends us on this odyssey, and then we meet this philosopher David Miller, and then we end up in South America, and we meet these Macaulay Culkin faced shamans that send us to a <laughs> portal that lets us go to the other side of the universe? That'd be a good idea, right? Of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Je- and Jeff is like, it I works. want to draw it. And Jeff's like, Yeah, I'd like to draw that. I want to try it. <laughs>
2: well this these and many other wonders in store for uh for future readers of america and the cult of the cactus booth the diagnostic uh jeff phil do you guys have any sort of final thoughts as we as we wind down this portion of the conversation
1: well um i was
2: want to talk about like the catharsis of what it felt like to finish this Uh, thing and like have it out in the world and see people engage with it and
0: read it Yeah, the
1: biggest thing is really just this incredible feeling to say that I'm no different than every other reader in the community that's trying to connect with the book that propels them into a new path uh, of discovery. And really, the book is a love letter to the novel. It's a love letter to readers. And it's really just an argument to say that while the novel theoretically in many cases as a media is constantly under attack in the new pop culture short attention span theater, I just am trying to say reading is super fucking fun and you should read books and you should talk about big ideas and you should take risks and you should... Love one another and connect on deep and scary ways, and the, the the novel is the way that we do it.
2: I love that. That's 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 what we're here right.
1: for. Did we talk about the book yet? <laughs> uh, wait, I didn't hit record. Yeah. Let's start over. Hold on. Yeah, hold on, hold on. Yeah. Um.
0: Uh, no, I, I want to thank you guys sincerely for taking time out tonight to be here. And uh, I want to plug uh, your Instagram, cult of the cactus boots, I think is the
2: handle. Phil, your eraser head dad is your Instagram
0: handle. Yeah,
1: I, I'm a...
2: <laughs> Which I watched Eraserhead recently for the first time. Kind of semi-inspired by that. Like, oh yeah, I got. I still got to watch Eraserhead. Lynch's self-proclaimed most spiritual film yeah. that he
1: will not elaborate on why. Um, and I did. The fun thing for me is my wife and I recently watched Eraserhead head with my 10 year old daughter and I, and, <laughs> oh, yeah. Really? And I, and I felt, uh, I felt like I, I feel like I'm parenting effectively. Uh, sure. And, and the funny thing,
2: what is that film? If not, uh, a model of parenthood, there, right?
1: there's an, yeah. Eraserhead head dad. Um, for another time, if you, if we ever do this again, uh, please ask me to tell you the story of me sending America and the cult of the cactus boots, a diagnostic to David Lynch's house and how oh, and how and why that happened. But okay. a- another time.
2: <laughs> I, yeah. I want to hear yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> uh Jeff you are matter underscore interacting on Instagram yeah
3: uh plenty of so
2: lots of your illustrations and art are there as well so people can check out more of your work yeah which is great a lot
3: of uh, just uh loose doodles and and fun on there for sure
2: yeah some of the stuff related to this book is on there as yep. well um so check those out um, you guys have both done some interviews sort of recently um that people can check out if they want more around this book uh, you can check out um everyone who reads yeah uh is is a, is a is noah he has a channel called on youtube called everyone who reads it must converse yeah hey, noah. It's obviously a great planary o'connor to us. yeah um and you guys did kind of an early discussion with him i think back in march yeah uh, which the, I, which I watched the thing
1: today. is too uh i i just want to say there are countless people whose shoulders we have risen upon, whose thanks we are uh, forever indebted to, including the both of you. But I, I just want everyone to know that Jeff and I are just deeply thankful for everyone in the community that took a risk on us to say, I don't know what the fuck these guys are doing but i'm i am i am curious that was my initial yeah check. yeah and, like what, and, is, and, what is going and, on and here? I, I don't mean to be kernel language guy and oh, inter- in, in, in an interview but i just want to thank deeply also as far as my heart can scream rick harsh forever the day that we are no longer here believed in jeff and i from the very first day that we said we are crazy people that have a crazy idea and he said i believe in you both and i want to thank my wife heather and I want to thank Jeff's wife, Erica. And I want to thank Noah Clemens from Everyone Who Reads. I want to thank Matt and Dave from Great Concavity. I want to thank Jim Gower. I want to thank Stephen Moore. I want to deeply thank Chris Via, who none of mm-hmm. this would be possible without. I want to thank Michael Silverblatt. I want to thank Chad Post, Will Evans. I want to thank every reader on Instagram and facebook and ScreenSync six that said these, these <laughs> yeah. people are doing something and i i want to be a part of it because this book is for everyone that is not philip friedenberg and jeff walton it's for readers and it's for creators and it's for people that as we said in the film network i'm um, sick and tired and i you know i'm not gonna take it anymore and mm-hmm. we wanted we yeah. want to use literature to connect
2: that's great. Chris well, Via, speaking writing. of, yeah. has an incredible video review of this book that he gets into like a lot of the really deep philosophy, uh, semiotic stuff and critical theory stuff. Um, so if you are are a person who's into like the novel of ideas, check out Chris Via's video. We'll link to it in the show notes of this as well. Sure. Uh, he talks for 35, 40 minutes just about the ideas of this novel. Um, so it was great to, I watched that yeah, earlier today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then talking to you guys about it and like we explored tons of different territory from what Chris did. And there's going to be people who are going to explore a whole series of thoughts about it in, in other contexts. As as it says
1: on the back of the book, the best synopsis that, uh, that I can share about the book is as it says, America and the cult of the cactus boots, a diagnostic explores philosophy, neuroscience, totalitarianism, alchemy, technology, psychology, cosmology, psychedelia, politics, physics, mystery, adventure, absurdism, poetry, and literature within an obscured hero's quest plot arc. And totally. it's a book of ideas that are for people that uh, love books, and it's about books, and it's uh, it's trying to push the novel into a new generation where we say that books are how we talk about big ideas. Yeah. That's okay.
0: Awesome. Okay. Final question. <laughs> how can someone buy the book?
2: I was just going to ask
0: that. Yeah. Too.
1: Uh, Nailed it.
2: Nailed it.
0: Now.
1: Very simple. At this point, if you want to buy the book, it's 20 euros. And all you have to do is use PayPal and send an email to rick.harsh at gmail.com and say, you'd like to buy a copy of the book. And uh, send your address, and we'll get that in the mail to you.
2: Give you a four month guarantee. Uh, for the, the
1: mail has been uh, very <laughs> quick lately.
2: Hey, all right, glad to hear that. Um, so a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, Matt, you and I were recently on a podcast called Thirty Minutes, uh, more or less, with Maestro and the Doc. Um, these are two guys named Anthony and Glenn out of the U.S. who have done a podcast about reading through Infinite Jest. Uh, and they, they talk about 70, 80 pages at a time. They had us on recently for their very last episode to talk about the last 80 pages of the book. Uh, we had a blast doing that with them. Um, If you haven't seen it around Instagram or Twitter, you can check that out. We'll link to it in the show notes. If you want to listen to that conversation, Uh, we want to thank those guys for having us on. It was a blast. It was a blast also to just read Infinite Jest again, like a big chunk of it.
0: It's been about four years
2: since the last time I did. So like, we got to talk about Gately. We got to talk about the freezing sand. Uh, There's all kinds of beautiful moments in there um, that we enjoyed a lot. Uh, we got a few new patrons uh, in the last month, so we'd like to thank S. Francis Fuller so much for for joining the team and supporting the show. Uh, our friend, yeah, Steve Fuller. Steve, that's right. Steve Fuller's um, been a
1: big part of this.
2: Yeah, I think I've seen that. I've seen that in some of your stuff. Uh, we want to thank Bowen Dunnan as well, who's a longtime listener, and uh, the guy who gave us donated those Enter the Aardvark extra copies that we just recently did a contest for. So thank you so much, Bowen. And we want to thank Niels Heibels as well uh, for joining, for supporting what we do. We so appreciate it. Uh, Matt, where can people find us online?
0: Concavity Show at Instagram and Twitter. And also you can email us, ConcavityShow at Gmail. Uh, we love getting emails. We have three or four in the queue right now, Dave. Of- mm-hmm people i need to write back who have written into us so yeah, keep fun, writing to fun us. weekend for emails yeah we've had a bunch of good good emails coming in so we like those send us some more
2: emails absolutely uh we have a threadless store with merchandise you can check out and a patreon page we'll link to all that stuff in the show notes um phil and jeff thank you so much for your time tonight it was such a pleasure talking to you it was so much fun i had a feeling this conversation was going to be one of the most con- most fun conversations we were ever going to have on the show and like my expectations were completely blown out of the water. So Uh, thank you both so much for your time. This was great.
1: I thank you guys both. And it's been a highlight since I've, I've followed you guys since even before writing a book and, um, it's been deeply meaningful for us. And, uh, I even felt an ex you know, extra sense of excitement too, with your last episode with steve erickson uh who's an author that i've read and deeply admire and what yeah. the two of you do to share a love of books and love of literature uh is deeply inspiring and we're thankful to both of you for even considering us to have this conversation tonight
2: amazing Thank our you. pleasure thanks for saying that's real sweet yeah. <laughs> catch me now as i say To darkness to be extinct. jeff how are you doing what's going on with you
3: i'm hanging in there good that man was, uh, we were just talking about it but uh yeah i was at work probably about an hour and a half ago and uh, took yeah. a little break had a little dinner and here we are all right cool at the printing shop
1: <laughs> yeah, dave, yeah dave we were telling matt that not everyone knows that jeff and i spend 12 hours a day together well i was Uh, wondering
2: if that part of the book was autobiographical as well because i feel like a lot of it is right well i think matt had said earlier this week that yeah like that's that's the
1: um the whole book is a true story it's true Mm -hmm.
2: yeah oh yeah all of that's true yeah Yeah. totally baby homunculus ivan yeah (laughs) Time portals, the whole, the whole gang.
0: Yeah, uh, slimy barefoot. Oh,
1: slimy barefoot. Uh, I don't know if we've be uh, have we begun. No, not we, really. We're gonna do the intro. Let's, <laughs> let's stop. Let's. I can splice this in. Let's in later. do the intro. Because yeah, okay. I, I, I'm already delighted to start to <laughs> totally. pick at those Man. those bits.
2: Us too. <laughs>